Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, the founder of VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, I'm interviewing Michael Miller. Michael was the founder of Hound Dog Products, and he's the current CEO of Walden Backyards. With Hound Dog, he built a successful national brand of lawn and garden tools from the ground up to about 10 million in sales. He pioneered a new category in the industry by applying consumer packaged goods marketing experience to the lawn and garden market, and he used global and local manufacturing partners. And now, with his new startup, Walden Backyards, He's setting out to market America's finest backyard lifestyle products. Primarily sold on Amazon, Walden's unique products will include premium quality fire pits, fire starters, fire pokers, and backyard games and other things. Michael, thanks for taking the time. It's fantastic that you're here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Pleasure. Yeah, it's going to be great. So Michael, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. We'll talk about how you came up with the idea, who you sell to, the number and types of products, number of employees, total revenues, and things like that. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. We'll talk more about how you launched the business in some key functions of that business. And the final part is the let's get personal component where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Michael, it's time for some questions. Should we dive in? Let's dive in. Let's do it. Give me the basics. Michael, in your first business, Hound Dog, how did you see a business opportunity in lawn and garden tools? You were working at Pillsbury, I think, at the time, weren't you? I was, yes. And, uh, and as a corporate, it, I received some really good advice in my 20s, and that was get as much experience as you can get so that when you turn 30, you can do your thing. Get that experience in your 20s uh, with a large corporation or uh, under somebody else's roof. And then when you turn 30 or so, you can do your own thing with a little bit more experience. So did you have that idea of becoming an entrepreneur early on in your life before your 20s? Yeah, John, I love that question. It's um, my first, let's say my first venture was a flop. I started a little ice cream shop. I had this vision for ice cream stores across the country when I was five years old, just because I knew I loved ice cream. And so I sent away for, <clears throat> sent away for an ice cream making kit. And just as soon as I got the package, I was so excited I broke it. So that's crazy. So you had, even at age five, an interest and a vision to some extent of 
becoming your own boss or starting your own thing at the time. Where did you get that influence? Yeah, I didn't, I really can't take credit for that, um, that vision because my grandfathers were both entrepreneurs. And so I think I kind of soaked that up from them that they, they were their own bosses and I, I loved their, their gumption and their lifestyle and their, their flexibility, but also realizing that they, they worked a lot. Like most entrepreneurs, they worked an awful lot because every, every moment they put time in, they were leveraging themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every, every time they put their own time in, they knew they were leveraging themselves for a better lifestyle. Yeah. So let's get back to this. So you're working at Pillsbury as a national sales manager or something along those lines. And then suddenly you see an opportunity in lawn and garden tools. How does that happen? <laughs> well, they say do something you love. And I was always, even when I was um, in corporate life, my refuge was the backyard and whether it was taking care of the backyard or enjoying time in the backyard. And so even in the halls of, uh, of the, uh, the corporate tower, people were asking me, now, should I be aerating now? Should I be, should I be fertilizing? What should I be doing with my yard? And talking um, figuratively over the, over the fence, uh, over the cubes in this case, but over the fence about how to enjoy the backyard more. And so um, that's always been a passion of mine. And I was delighted when I came across something that looked like yeah, I could make a business out of it. And tell me more about how you saw something. Yeah, I was, I put an ad in the paper right about when I was about to turn 30 years old called I'm your successor back when you could, when you advertise in the paper instead of going online and, and this I'm your successor, the whole idea was maybe there was a re, uh, retiring uh, business owner or somebody who um, needed somebody to succeed them in business with a little bit of a bio on me. And, um, and I got a call from a guy who um, had a real estate deal. And I told him I wasn't interested in that. I had no expertise in it. But then he, he said, um, well, I've got this thing in my garage I'd like to show you. And that was, that was a lot of garden tool that I got very excited about. Was it the tool that pulls out the dandelions? It was. It was. He was calling it something else, but we decided to call it the, the weed hound, picturing a line of products that, that, that were all kind of the hound thing. And the name, we named the company then Hound Dog. And I didn't have a lot of money to spend on buying this inventor outright. So what I suggested was, why don't we, I'll test market it because I know marketing a little bit. I'll test market it and sell it. And, and if, it, if it starts to look like it's going gonna, it's gonna to go, I'll give you a share of the profits. And he said he thought that sounded good to him. Who did you sell the product to in the early days, that hound dog product? Yeah, we started with just a, a couple of retailers. We wanted to work out the, the kinks, which is a, a good idea, I think, for anybody in consumer packaged goods. Before you really hit the big time, you certainly want to work out the kinks because you don't want a big recall that could just crush, crush the company. So I started with my first account was uh, Lindale Garden Center. They're not around anymore, but there were this this sort of iconic uh, garden center, huge garden center in South Minneapolis. And uh, and as the paint was drying on the first batch of tools, I was pitching them to folks who were shopping for springtime tools. And these were these were innovative. I mean, just really, um, I wouldn't say ramshackle, but not not streamlined tools, but that were very effective. And so that was 
a lot of fun just to be on the floor and selling to passersby. Did you just have that one product to start with? Yeah, it was just the one product. And then within about six months, we decided, well, that's no product line. If we're going to, if we're going to signal to the market that we're building a product line here, we better come up with a couple of, a couple more. One, one product is a point, two products is a segment, but three products we figured made a line. Yeah. And my first question was who, who did you sell to? And of course you went to Lindale garden center right off, but in the next two, three, four years, once you were running, tell us more about the retail distribution then. Sure. Well, it was important to us to be in um, in hardware stores and nurseries and garden centers. And then later on, in, in year, I think year three, we got a test with Target. And they gave us, I think, 30 stores in Minneapolis. And, um, and so we got a test. And they were kind enough to test market the product and and it went well and we we supported it with some advertising too the first three markets we went into after john after the first uh, after the first year were minneapolis kansas city and then dallas because we wanted we wanted north middle and south to see about the dynamics of those different markets and we we did then in year three we turned on the tv a little bit of tv advertising both to drive distribution as as we promised you know the product would pull through and um, and to to deliver some brand awareness and product awareness, of course. Sure. And early on, that first six months to a year, how many employees did you have? Just two, just me and my sidekick. And uh, I just knew that I needed a sidekick. It was, it's a lonely walk at first, of course. And, um, and I just knew I needed somebody to do a lot of the blocking and tackling that I couldn't do when I was out selling or marketing and um, developing products, which is my, I love that stuff. I really, I'm not big on operations and, um, and order fulfillment and, and procurement. That's, that's for people who are better at that kind of stuff than I am. Sure. And when you sold the company years later, how many employees did you have? We were more of a virtual company. We had 10 employees doing $10 million. So 1 million in sales per Head and I liked it that way because it was a a good work family, a good a good close knit group of people, each specialized in their own area. And you eventually sold that business, is that right? Did sold it to um, well uh, to a private equity firm that bought us to match up with Ames True Temper. Ames True Temper that's a very um, a, a widely distributed line of oh picks and shovels and shoot they were. Uh, John, I think they were founded in 1774. Wow. And so the, the folks at the private equity firm said, why don't we take this innovative little company with a kind of a cool brand called Hound Dog and match it up with these giants who are into more commoditized, heavy-duty products and see if see if there could be some, some synergies there. How did you come up with the Hound Dog name? I just thought it was uh, already part of the American vernacular. I know Elvis did that. It was. It had a nice ring to it. It was folksy. Our first tool, uh, the Weed Hound, was uh, especially before we streamlined the production of it and the design of it, looked like a fairly menacing tool. So we wanted to we want to friendly it up a little bit, and and so we gave it a, a friendly color and a friendly little dog on there, and it was was not. It it turned out to be something that back to your point about consumer packaged goods, really thinking through the mind of the consumer and 
And is this, is this a serious sort of something I could get hurt with? Or is this really something that's more fun to use in the backyard? That was our goal. Sure. Michael, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Hound Dog's uniqueness, did your original assumption about that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while? Yeah, what a great question. There was a there was a period I remember about year four or five when we were like, we we're thinking, what business are we really in? Um, because we sold these specialty lawn and garden tools, but were we really in the fun business? Were we in the the lawn care maintenance business? Were we in the uh, back saving back saving tool business? What what? Why were people really buying our products? And so we had to go through a, a period of certainly. Um, very assertive listening with consumers and retailers and and saying um, gosh why why did they buy and it turned out that there was a matching gap in the market for specialty lawn and garden tools there was no one who was really seeing and building that category so we chose that as our as the category that we wanted to lead and Home Depot saw it that way and a lot of the other majors that we were doing business with them um, saw that there was a gap in that market. And so we were glad to lead that. How did you come up with your product line extensions or your new product lines with that strategy in mind? And how difficult was it to find products that would fit that criteria and be motivating for somebody to purchase? Yeah. So there are, um, as we see it, and, and at Walden too, we see it, th there are three different ways to come up with products that make sense, differentiated products that really make sense. You can, you can, um, well, just discover them like some underrepresented product, some inventor like, like the Wheat Hound was just discover a product by kind of beating the bushes and go to trade shows or whatever. Then you can, um, you can improve upon the best ones that are out there. If you can come up with, if you really want to position yourself as, as a premium and deliver on that promise of being a premium good, just improve upon the products that are already out there. Um, that are set for set for kind of the belly of the market, just um, and make them twice as good at maybe a slightly higher price. And thirdly, and this isn't the most fun as far as I'm concerned, and that's invent something, come up with a way to skin the cat better, and and that's something that I really enjoy doing. And um, I've run across a few people in in my years that are really really good at that. That is a unique talent for sure. I. Several years ago, when I left my last uh, position, I went out actively to spot new opportunities and to try to some, launch something new. And I looked into intellectual property and all sorts of different new product segments, did some real high level and down on the dirt strategic and tactical thinking on it. And I was surprised how, at how I could not find something that I really felt confident in. And so that's why I'm sort of asking this question, how difficult was it? it? It sounds like it was something that you just did sort of naturally, but was there on a scale of one to 10, how difficult was it to find those items or to identify those things? Yeah, and by by you saying find, I, I think you I, what I'm taking that to mean is whether you you discover it or invent it or, or uncover something that's on the market, that's all ways of finding. I, 
for me, it um, it's always kind of rolling around in my head a little bit because because I love the backyard. Like, how can I make that a more enjoyable experience back there? And um, and so some people are always thinking about how the numbers work and how to optimize a spreadsheet. And some people are that's just some of the you know I'm lousy at hundreds of things and good at just a few. That's one that's, that's a passion and and an interest of mine is uh, is coming up with a better way. Tell me how. So here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Michael, let's talk about raising capital. Did you raise capital for Hound Dog? Very little. I was um, was lucky to have a little bit of savings and, and a stepdad who was retired and and wanted to help out a little bit and you know he was just looking for something to do and and so he kicked in a little bit and um and i kicked in my savings and and really uh, really followed a strategy that somebody told me later on was called the make a little sell a little strategy and that is just, just um if you can if you can sell 10 and maybe you can buy 20 more if you're selling at the right margin then then sell those and go buy 30 40 more and and support those and work out the kinks. And so it was really, we didn't go, I mean, shoot, uh, first year sales were like $9,000. We really, we really started slowly and, uh, we didn't go out for funding. Uh, another bit of really good advice that I got was, you know, don't give up equity if you don't have to. And if you're going to get funding early on, um, you're probably not going to find, especially as a startup, and it, particularly if you're a first-time entrepreneur, really difficult to find a professional investor who would who would be interested, but rather friends and family. And I didn't, I really didn't want to go out with my hat in my hand to too many people. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I love the bootstrapping mentality, and I think so much in the entrepreneurship and startup media talks about the need to raise capital and sort of the the misleading glamour that is, is associated with that. Did you ever consider raising more capital along that hound dog journey? Or as you look back, would you have done things differently regarding your sources of capital? Yeah, no, for, for the first time as an entrepreneur, I thought it was, I thought it was good to be a little bit broke and to have to kind of rub two sticks together to see what you could make happen. That um, I don't regret not getting more outside capital because you know certainly you have to answer to those bosses too and and the freedom when you set out to do your own thing that that freedom is wonderful and productive if you just really engage and watch every dime. There are some folks who say you know yes it's going to take twice as much money and three times as long as you think and that's probably true but. The resourcefulness that goes with that and the lessons learned when you're flying close to the ground, you never forget. Michael, when you first learned of the opportunity for the initial product that you launched with Hound Dog, when you met the individual after placing the ad, how many products did you review prior to that? Or was that one of the first products that you were exposed to and you figured you would just run with it? Yeah, I think... I think on the back burner, I had looked at lots of different products just because of my interest in lawn and garden. So that when I, when I did come across this one, 
I've, I had a really strong sense that that was something that I would buy as a consumer. So something that I would like to sell as a manufacturer. It's not like I had a systematic approach to, you know, build a spreadsheet and, and say, well, in this, in this area of the backyard, we want to have this kind of product and let's scour the market and be, and really be deliberate about it. It was more spelunking. Let's talk about finding a manufacturer. How did you go about assembling or manufacturing the product in the early days? And eventually, did you outsource that at some point? Yeah, we outsourced it right from the beginning. We had somebody who was very small um, and so that we were interesting enough to them as a startup that they would take a leap of faith on us. And we paid for the I think it was like 4,000 bucks uh, for the initial dies to be able to make this tool. And it was pretty rough, but to, to get really a proof of concept and a market test on it. And so those those tools that I told you we were selling at Lindale Garden Center, the first hundred, I think it was, no, 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 it was, it was fewer than a hundred. I think it was three dozen tools. Um, a whole bunch of those broke. But the good news is we, we stood behind them and replaced them when we got a, an order for a hundred more. Then we could um, continue to work out the kinks, and and I never really wanted to be in the in the hands-on manufacturing business. I'm more interested in design and marketing. So you indicated that there were some problems with that first batch that you created. What other sort of problems happen when you're working with a contracted manufacturer? Yeah, well, they're they're interested in in selling more. So they're always kind of pushing you, well, um, you know, here are your price breaks. If you sell a few, it's going to be very expensive. And when you sell more, it's going to, you're going to start to give you some price breaks. So there's always that pressure to overbuy um, and to, and to bet on the come. And my caution there is, is to just be very careful, especially in the early going, because you know that those, that first pilot run and maybe second, third runs of, of products, they're going to be wrong. They're going to be maybe right for the market, but wrong compared to what they could be when they're when they're optimized. I wouldn't overbook just to chase variable savings. Do you remember how you eventually found that manufacturer? I mean, how would you even start to find out how to create something like that from scratch? Yeah, the first one, just a guy was a friend of a friend with a, a little job shop that had a little capacity, and just an over oversized garage really and they were willing to kind of take the bumps and bruises of figuring out how a product could work together and how to weld it and how to, how to cut the steel and um but later on they couldn't keep up with what we needed and and so we had to move to another manufacturer and then they had a hard time keeping up and the and the, the cost per unit was not low enough and so we found another one and that third manufacturer was right here in Minnesota, and they were great. I'm still friends with the the guy who uh, who made those for us. And what business were they in? What other types of products did they manufacture for other clients or for themselves? Yeah, they made truck parts. They had their own line of, of heaters. They they made uh, job shop stuff for like ATVs and uh, and different different gauges of steel. So we knew they had a lot of the capacity, the stamping, and the the welding and the um, and the relationships in powder coating and they they really knew what they were doing. I mean, so much better than we did. We just had the vision for this thing that that pulled weeds and and was starting to get some interest in the market. Could could we do this at 
at our at the price that we needed so that we could sell it and make our margin at 20 bucks. Did you ever consider or did you ever go overseas for your product manufacturing? Yeah, later on we we were pretty much forced to by the big the big boxes said um, said essentially if you don't we will. And why would they say that? Well, I think they were trying to they're all about volume and they were trying to get just that extra oh 30 40 cents out of every tool um, so that if they could do a little bit more volume and then this was back in the day when large retailers you know the category there was the advent of the category killers like home depot so they were they were competing with other folks who were vying for that top spot and so there was a competition on suggested retail and who could who could sell it just a little bit lower, uh, because they were they were building their own brand and reputation for being the lowest price, high quality good. How about with your current business, Walden Backyards? How are you? How did you go about finding a manufacturer for those items? For the items here, we we wanted to keep things in this in the U.S. and to whatever extent we can, we do. But we know that the consumer's boss, and we have a really a pretty good sense about what people were willing to pay for a premium fire pit or poker or fire starters and um, or you know some of our other products and and so we say well okay let's back it down from what the consumer needs and which is a great guiding light of ours and consumer packaged goods that's they're the boss right they always are so let's start with what the consumer really needs as a price point and then figure out how to back into that we couldn't find anybody um, in some of these parts, we couldn't find anybody in the States to make them at the price we needed. So we had to find a premium offshore manufacturer for those parts. But everything else that we can do, we do do in the USA. And how did you find that partner? That was through Alibaba. Okay, as simple as that. Yeah, and then we were just very cautious about how we approached uh, the rounds of qualifying prospective suppliers. Sure. And do you visit the factory or do you have people that do that sort of thing? We have folks doing that, but I'm going to come, come May, I'm going to have to go, go visit and, and make sure that everything is that the manufacturers are, are um, what they say they are, who, who they say they are. It's, there's nothing like looking somebody right in the eye and shaking their hand at the same time. Why did you think about starting a new physical product business? Well, service, I did consider service because you, you can build brands and service. Um, but my background, John, is, is in products. And um, I knew that I just, I love having uh, and inventing products. Yeah, you can kind of invent a service, but I love inventing products that make, make things better, that make people, help people enjoy the backyard. So with that that love and, and some experience there, I thought, why, why leave that experience on the table? Let's talk about selling the product to retailers. Early on, how did you learn to do that? And what were those first approaches like specifically? Did you go to them originally to get feedback and then later come back with a pricing sheet and a terms and condition sheet and all of that? Or did you just go to them flat out straight up with a product and a pricing sheet and so on? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I cut my teeth in sales with, with Procter & Gamble and selling soap 
something as undifferentiated as as soap and detergent, but you know some good brands in there. And I, the the whole idea of making ten sales calls a day every day for five days a week and getting kind of the shtick down and figuring out what works and what doesn't, making sure that you're always telling the truth to these folks and and figuring out what what's important to them and and putting those two things together you come up with a an, a unique selling and marketing story. So I took that experience and and went to retail with our first product and and just had conversations with folks uh trying to help them meet their needs, folks being the small retailers, trying to help them meet their needs from um a consumer interest standpoint, what's good for their brand as a storefront, what are they what are they looking for and how do they want it packaged? And I just treated it like extended marketing research. Sure. It sounds like you really had an advantage going into that situation. But can you recall any mistakes that you made at the time or some things you did not expect in that new category with the, that new group of retailers? Can you recall any stories along those lines? Yeah, I can recall several. I mean, my goodness, you got all day for mistakes. I, I'll fill it. Um, sure. But um, one of the big mistakes that we made is, I would say, one of the good things we did is we listened. But one of the big big things uh, that was a mistake was we overcomplicated the selling story. Really, um, our first package, I should say our second, the first one was a mess. Second one was just so full of, of, of interesting points that, you know, it's like everything was important, so nothing was. So we really had to had to say, okay, let's get it down to three bullets and all based around benefits. Like what does this product do for you? And and simplify that message. And that's that mistake um, was something that's uh, that I've carried forward to pretty much every product that I've ever launched since then. Let's have let's have three main claims. Three. Your limit is three bullets, and ideally three or four words each bullet um, on the package. So people get it right away in just those few seconds where they glance. So that that's one, um, and this is not, this is something that I heard. I think the guy's name is Doug Hall. He's an XP&G guy. He says, you know, um, you better have clear benefits. You better have uh, a great, like a, a wow difference. And you better have a real reason to believe, credibility. Michael, what sort of support marketing support and sales support was required to succeed in working with those retailers the first couple of years. Did you have to work with the sales staff at the retailer and educate them and really maybe incent them or motivate them in any way through um, explicit marketing materials or training or anything along those lines? Yeah, it wasn't that, it wasn't that formal, John. It was more like you know, everybody roots for the underdog, and I love that about America. You root for the underdog, and you want to see people succeed. And small retailers are no different. They're, they're very supportive of that because they're small business people themselves. So the greatest motivator that I saw was, one, we're going to stand behind our product. They're not going to look bad for selling a product that's not going to meet the needs that the, the needs of the consumer. But um, aw shucks was kind of our approach. Like, aw shucks, you know, we're just... We're um, starting off this this cool little business, and would you like to give us a shot? And and that got a lot of I think that got a lot of interest. As long as you're trying to help them meet their needs, and you know, as Zig Ziglar said, you know, you succeed by helping others succeed. 
if you're doing that, people sense that very quickly and they're there to help you. When I was in the ski and snowboard industry and even in the energy supplement business, a couple of businesses that I was that I had ownership in, we would identify key tailors, retailers that were key to us across the United States that had a lot of influence in the industry. Did you take that strategy? I think you were a lot smarter than I was in that. We weren't we weren't as um, surgical. We were more like going out preaching the word and seeing seeing who was buying. Yeah. Did you ever work with wholesalers or distributors? Yes, briefly. We felt like this was back when distributors in lawn and garden were still were still an important part of the equation. I don't see as much of that now, um, but we felt like. If they're not going to pioneer with us, if they're not going to, if they're going to be more of an obstacle than than a pioneering partner, let's just go build the relationships directly with the retailers, and that was a good strategy for us. You also recruited independent sales reps across the country. Am I correct? And how did you identify the better teams and set up relationships with them? Well, you ask, how did we identify the better teams? The answer is, at first, poorly. <laughs> um, we, uh, there were, there were so many times when I got the wool pulled over my eyes when, when reps would, they, they want to catch a rising star, but they're not willing to kind of do the work. Some of them to pioneer a product. So I really had to, I really had to get good. And, and our, our team really had to get good at finding who is really committed and capable and somebody, some folks with whom we had the kind of chemistry that would make this a good long-term fit. Their independent independent sales reps are, um, they're a mixed bag. You've got some really, really good ones, and then you've got some, um, I'm, I'm sure that the, these still exist out there. There's some line collectors, folks who um, collect a line, they, they put a good sales job on you and tell you that they're gonna go represent your product and then put it on the shelf and see if see if it jumps somehow. And did you have some incentive plans in place for them? And what was the contract and terms like with those reps? Yeah, the the going rate was oh five to ten percent of of sales with a retailer, and we felt like uh, if we could get five, do it at five or six percent, but really, really support them with advertising and get. Once they get distribution with a retailer, really, um, really take good care of them, then they're going to represent, then they're going to pioneer the product, whether it's a 5% line or a 10% line. If you're doing twice the volume at 5% and they're getting, they're getting retailers calling them because they want to do that, that business. We, we thought it, rather than overpaying and, sp and spending it all on the rep commission line item, we spread it around with a little, you know, get the push, but also get the pull. Did it ever get messy a little bit when the sales reps lined you up or introduced you to some major retailer, maybe a big box that you felt that maybe that was your job to get those bigger accounts and keep those commission for yourself? No, we were by and large. Did it ever get messy? Yes, it did. But by and large, we, we were really clear with expectations, who got what accounts and which house, which accounts were going to be house accounts. And, and sometimes the retailers, you know, they want to go, 
they want to go direct to the manufacturer and you at some point you have to say yes but you want to take care of those as they say dance with them what brung you so um we we hope that we did a really good job of honoring the hard work of all our pioneers let's talk about pricing a little bit how did you go about setting the price for your products and did you make any mistakes along the way yeah we made that classic mistake of underpricing the product at first we um because we were such optimists that we looked past a lot of the a lot of the costs that just have to go into a product i mean there's freight don't overlook that <laughs> don't overlook uh, some returns or or um some of the costs of of extending oh some people kind of wanted some retailers wanted what well, we sort of uh, kidded around saying they're net never terms they wanted to pay you you know in six months or something so well there's some cost of money there of course so we didn't do a very good job i'm a sales and marketing guy primarily so i i was more looking at the top line and excited about building the company and i wasn't tending to the margin line as much as i should have so later on we had to take some price increases that were uh, there's a special place in the heart of a retailer when you take a price increase right so we had to be careful not to overdo that but shoot you got to live you must have had some very very small marketing budgets in those early days how did you create awareness and demand for the product uh good displays uh and you can do i think nowadays you you can't do as much you don't have as much freedom to do good point of purchase displays and then tend to them just more sweat equity going out to the stores and and detailing those displays and making sure that that those floor stackers are are clean and well well tended to because the consumer then sees them and um that was also from Procter and Gamble that experience of of if the stores got the and the, particularly the good stores you want to be associated with but if they've got the traffic just make sure that that traffic uh sees your display is is impressed with it like favorably gets a good impression about your brand and then tell the story quickly and see if they can if they'll buy it from you there's no, there's there are few things more fun very few things more fun than just kind of walking into a retailer and seeing a consumer you've never met or sold to with with your product in their cart that means they voted for you i love that yeah that is super exciting let's get personal so michael let's get personal on a few topics it seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business but never start one starting a business is unusual what motivates a person like you michael miller to stop just talking about launching a business and then actually go out and start a business like hound dog do you think you're a creator at heart was it your destiny to start something like that yeah destiny is a pretty heavy word but certainly i always had the 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 interest and gumption i thought to uh, want to do my own thing and have some flexibility i was just i'd say in corporate i was just so immature <laughs> i mean they the corporate would view it that way a little bit more uh, cowboy and kind of I, i viewed a lot of the folks um in corporate as as obstacles to really getting the job done there's so dog on many reports and meetings and all that stuff so um i knew that i was a misfit in in a large corporation um but um i was really delighted when i found out that that the thing that i hoped 
and dreamed about doing all my life was what what really turned me on, and that is having my own company and cleaning my own toilets in the in the office and you know uh, vacuuming my own floors and and just when you sell a product, it's your product, and you know everything that goes into it. And our team, you know, the people being being able to build a great work family with people you really care about. What a blast! Did your success surprise you? Yeah, there were times when um, there were times when I thought, "Wow, this is really happening." Um, when you when you keep rolling that rock, and then it starts to get a little bit easier. It's just, it really puts a smile on your face. Surprised? Yeah, I guess I have to say almost all the time when, when, um, when you're really doing a business. And then when we got to the, those milestones, when we got to profitability, and then when we got to the point where, uh, we felt comfortable traveling, not, do you remember when you had to, had to buy a ticket uh, and stay over Saturday to get a cheap flight? Those little milestones when you, you feel comfortable buying a flight and you buy it right, but buying a flight when you don't stay over a Saturday felt like such a luxury. Those are little points of surprise, like, wow, we're really doing this. What was your biggest joy or what were you most proud of along the journey? Oh, that's an easy one, the people. I just, I love seeing people grow when they overcome a challenge that they didn't think they could overcome. And as they, as they develop in a, in a company that you build together, to see those people grow and and smile and succeed and and then do it again and adapt and it's just it's just that's that is a real joy and then to see and then to see the products that were the brainchild of your team or 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 your or something an idea you woke up with to actually be on the market and and satisfying a need those those are really those are moments of great joy what was your biggest frustration? Well, same answer, <laughs> probably. Um, when people, when I made some hiring, um, uh, hiring errors, and and I couldn't, you can't. Um, it's it's really hard to tell when you're making a hiring error. Sometimes I'd say, as entrepreneurs and as your audience learns to to develop in business, they're going to get better and better at selecting the right people who fit the chemistry, like the cultural fit and the capabilities that are needed. But at first I, you know, tend to be an optimist. And so I thought, uh, everybody it can do what they claim to claim to be able to do. And it just wasn't the case. Very frustrating when you, when you put your, your hopes and dreams in someone's hands and they just can't execute. Michael, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones that are at the pinnacle of their success experience self doubt from time to time as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and what, how have you dealt with it? Yeah, well, the self-doubt, that's, I, of all your questions, I think that's a really good one because everyone's got self-doubt or, or they're, I just don't think they're being honest with you if they don't, if they claim that they don't. We're all human and, and so my, I'd say there were kind of two, two kinds of self-doubt that I had. One was the opinions of others, uh, and what what are they going to think when I when I leave corporate, when I leave this 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 big job, and I go to starting my own thing, and like I said, you know, vacuuming my own floors and and starting a thing out of a basement or whatever. What um, there's some self doubt that creeps in if you let it on the opinions of others, um, especially those who are still in those corporate jobs. 
but the other one was just like, can I really pull this? The the, the right in your heart and your gut, the the self doubt. Like, can I really pull this off? Can I? Am I really good enough? Am I really um, smart enough and going to be lucky enough to to pull this off? And what really helped with that is having a group of peers around me. I I uh, have for a long time belonged to the CEO roundtable, and that's been a, as I was building Hound Dog, that was a huge help to me to have people around me who were interested in my success and well-being and could hold me accountable and 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 sometimes help me lift myself out of that self-doubt because they've experienced the same thing themselves. Starting a new business is really challenging. How has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all? It's taught me to to be clear in how I speak, it's taught me to be, um, to be hopefully humble and in the way that, cause there's, there's an element of luck there. There just is in starting a company that, that changed me a bit because, you know, when you're young, you set out and you think you can take on the world and, and control the world and you, you can't. So that, that kind of awareness and the, and kind of the gratitude for good breaks has been a big change in me, I think. This is a similar question, but I wonder if it stimulates a different response. What have you learned most about yourself on your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think you're right. That's, that's a similar question. What I've learned most about myself, gosh, um, balance. Um, don't, I'd say I've learned that, um, it takes a, a great team and um and really simplify the would say that that that's part of the message that didn't come through in the previous answer and that is if if you can make it simple if you that that if you can't make it simple you're probably not that either either you're not onto something or you're not that sharp you gotta uh, gotta be able to make it simple and straightforward or it's just not going to fly who has been most influential to you in your life either professionally or personally. Yeah. Aside from my, um, my, my Christian walk, which is a, a big part of influence over me, my, um, my grandfathers were a huge influence being able to see how different they were as entrepreneurs, different from other people and different from one another, just saying, wow, they're, they're, they're just not, they weren't cut from the same cloth. They're very different approaches but they were both successful entrepreneurs. So uh, I saw that that was, that was how they expressed themselves in business. And that was pretty cool to watch. And then as they succeeded also, it was something that was, was attractive to me. Certainly um, my friends, and I touched on briefly the, the, my peers in, um, in a peer group. And I can, I can recommend that to anybody. Having a peer group of, of folks who you can be really honest with, what a what a great influence because you know you've only got the years of experience that you've done in your own walk but how about combining that at at, at moments of really like gut check times with uh, with people with hmm, twenty years each of experience a couple hundred years of experience you could be pretty smart Michael this is my final question did I miss any questions that you feel you'd like to provide answers to or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? Yeah, two two things strike me as you ask that question, John. 
One is um, I'm approached by inventors from time to time with, uh, I was at Hound Dog and now I am at Walden, with folks who have inventions that they'd like to take to market. And they, and, and they haven't done, they haven't looked at the alternatives that are out there in the market already. They haven't looked at the, the potential competitors. They, they fall in love with this product and they think, they picture themselves kind of in the Caribbean, like this is going to get, get me over the top. The old saying, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door, I think has done people a lot of disservice. So I would take that with a grain of salt. And then, um, then I would say I some really good advice that I got from a good friend a while back is keep stumbling toward the light because <laughs> you're going to stumble. And uh, just as long as you keep that light in sight, like where you think this is going to be, um, where you think the pro- you'd like to see the product be, and, and keep that vision and keep stumbling and, and do it with a smile on your face, and it works. So I know those are it probably sounds like platitudes, but, boy, those, those really sustain you in those dark times. No, that's some great wisdom. Michael, you've been a terrific guest, offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneurial listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. Well, thank you, John. My pleasure. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.